like for us to think about this question. Uh, when it comes to our lives, how much should we care about what other people think? When it comes to our lives, how much should we care about what other people think? You know, I used to think, I used to care about what people thought of my hair. I used to. Um, I don't know when it happened, right? I mean, I went years and years with the traditional bowl cut, right? How many of you remember the bowl cut, suffered through that? Straight, obviously. I mean, my hair, you can't tell now, but I mean, straight, straight, straight blonde hair. And uh, there was this one time I went to my great aunt, and she was going to cut my hair. She was a hair cutter. She asked me how I wanted my hair cut, and I had heard somewhere in school about this thing called feathered hair. I didn't know what it was, but I knew I needed it, right? Like, I don't know. I need, I want a feathered hair haircut. Well, she cut it. It didn't feather, but that was that. We tried. Um, but why is it so important what others think about us? Like, why is it why does it even come into play what I think other people think about my hair, right? Or more importantly, so many other real uh, and more important areas of our lives. Why is it so important to us? Um, have you ever found yourself living in one healthy extreme or another when it came to how you perceived other people thought of you, right? Have you ever, have you ever been just so consumed with what you thought other people thought about you, that that became a really, really unhealthy way for you to live your life. Like you were doing all kinds of things to try to try to please people or try to, you know, make people think more of you than maybe they did or that you thought they did, right? But it was, it was very consuming, not only consuming, but probably even crippling, right? Because it uh, disallowed you from just kind of living out more authentically who you are, right? So there's, there's that extreme when we, when we think too much of what other people think about us. But then there's also the other extreme where, um, and how many of you met the kind of person who doesn't care at all about what another person thinks about them, right? That's a problem too, isn't it? Right? Haven't we seen uh, people behave in such a way that it clearly demonstrated this person does not care what other people think about them. I wonder, is there a better way? Um, and so today we're going to learn something about the Apostle Paul. He's going to speak specifically about uh, this particular office uh, or calling that he had in his life uh, and the responsibilities around that. Uh, but what we're going to learn as Paul says something about himself, uh, it'll give us some indications of also some things that we should expect from our church leaders. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to talk a little bit about me, right, and other people like me. But then, really, we're going to learn something about all of us. We're going to learn something about ourselves um, this morning. So if you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 1, the Apostle Paul says this. A person should think of us, and when Paul says us, he's talking primarily here about himself um, and other church leaders, right? Throughout this letter, he has been making references to himself and to other leaders like Apollos and Peter. Uh, and so he says to the church that he's writing to, a person should think of us in this way, as servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. 
In this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I am not conscious of anything against myself, but I am not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me. So, don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts. And then praise will come to each one from God. So Paul here, uh, he tells the church, I want you to think of us in this way. And then he uses a couple of words to describe how he wants the church to think about himself and people like him. Uh, it's interesting in chapter 3 and some weeks ago when we looked at it, uh, Paul used some other words to describe the nature of what it meant to be a worker for God. Uh, back in chapter 3, he described himself as well as others who were working for God, um, many of which you all are. He said, we are fellow workers, uh, co-laborers, right? He was using the imagery of a field that was being planted and harvested. And he said that he came along and he planted the seed. And then in this example, Apollos, another of the church leaders, came along and watered it. And then God gave the growth. And the point that he is making is that each person within the context of a church has varying responsibilities that we all, every single one of us who are part of the church, play a part in what growth ultimately results. And each of those functions, while they may be different, they are all important, right? Not one is more important than another, right? This is the distinction that he is making in the fact that we are fellow workers. Some of you experience this at work. Like you go to a place where there's a lot of people who are all contributing to various aspects of whatever it is that you're producing, right? And so Paul says it is this way with the church, right? Uh, I happen to kind of come along today and I preach a message. Uh, some, um, not me, thankfully, were singing and playing musical instruments, right? Others are serving by handing out programs, receiving the offering, uh, uh, putting on a service for, for kids of different ages, right? Like all these different functions play a part in ultimately producing the growth that will ultimately result. So Paul says we're fellow workers. And then he also describes himself as a servant, Again, in chapter 3, he says, and the English word that we translate, we use the word servant. But it's actually a different word that he uses in chapter 3 from this one that we're going to look at in just a moment in chapter 4, which we also translate as servant. Back in chapter 3, the word that he used there referred to uh, such a person as would be uh, waiting tables. Uh, a person that would be like within let's say, the imagery of a household would be the person that would be tending to uh, others during the course of a meal, right? This was a servant. Um, a servant in Paul's day could have been spoken of plainly as uh, just a description for what this person's uh, life sort of revolved around. Uh, it could also be used in a derogatory way, right? Uh, a, a person who was like the servant uh, that was described, that Paul used to describe himself, uh, it could have been used derogatorily, like 
um, as an insult. Uh, you know, somebody is, is a servant. They're part of the lower class. They're, they're part of, you know, a class of society that is, uh, that is not important or is, is worthless, right? They're just servants, like that kind of idea. And Christianity actually captured the essence of this word to describe an ethic that was supposed to mark what it meant to be a Christian, right? The Christians, they took this word for servant and they decided to use it for themselves as we continue to use it for ourselves to describe the nature of how we function one with the other. That is, you and I, we are servants and we serve one another. Um, these are very important things for us to understand before we get into uh, what Paul talks about in chapter 4, we need to remember how Paul describes church leadership. Um, that is that you ought to, if you're not in church leadership, but you are part of a church, you ought to have certain expectations of those who are in leadership, myself included, as well as others who are uh, perhaps on staff here, or even volunteers that have leadership positions. What should you expect from your leaders according to what is being described here through the Paul's usage of things like servant um, and fellow worker? Well, uh, Paul's view of Christian leaders was something like an inverted pyramid. Uh, that is in contrast to how we see power structures in our world today. If you think about uh, how the power structures look, they are like a pyramid, right? A right-sided pyramid. That is that at the very top, you have a privileged few who hold the power, hold the cards, hold a lot of the money as well. And then as you work your way down toward the bottom of the period, you find the masses, right? The masses who are ultimately responsible for their various functions that contribute to whatever it is that that pyramid of organization is trying to accomplish, but that, let's be honest, ultimately and mostly benefits those at the top, right? That's what we see in our world today. You take any Fortune 500 company, and what are you going to see? You're going to see a company that's organized with a CEO, a CFO maybe, a COO, a board of directors, right? You have a small number of people that are at the top who have incredible power when it comes to what happens within that organization. Not only that, but they have extremely high monetary benefits, right? This is why you hear about these CEOs making bonuses of millions or tens of millions of dollars, while we know that at the very bottom of that corporate pyramid, there are probably thousands and thousands and thousands of people who are doing the work uh, that might be making $30,000 a year, $50,000 a year. Now, Paul's understanding of the church derived from the ethic that Jesus talked about over and over and over again throughout the Gospels was the church was to look like something like an inverted pyramid. That is, now you take this pyramid and you turn it upside down so that while you still may have a small number of people who serve as leaders, it is not for them to kind of sit there at the top benefiting from the efforts of the masses. Unfortunately, in the world of religion, we have seen, um, we've seen the pyramid existing in the wrong way. 
Uh, we, have, we have seen how religion has sometimes maintained the traditional power structure where a relatively small number of people held the power and held the wealth, and it was the masses who served the superiors. The church is designed and only can properly function when the pyramid is upside down and the leaders become servants to all. That while there may be a degree of uh, influence and a degree of authority that those leaders have by way of the function that they happen to be playing out, what ought to characterize those who are in leadership in the church is their willingness to serve all. That's what you ought to expect. That is also, if you are a follower of Jesus today, the way in which your life ought to be organized. Like wherever you find yourself. I mean, we all, we all are, we're living in, a, you know, some of us, a, a number of different pyramid kind of structures. Uh, might be your household has a, a structure of authority, uh, a way in which things in the household get done. You may work for a small business, or you may be a self-employed contractor with some people who work for you, or you may work at some big place where you are um, anywhere, you know, top or bottom on the rungs of corporate um, of corporate management. But wherever, whatever those pyramids are, if you're a follower of Jesus, your life ought to be characterized by a desire to serve everyone else, right? We talk about this, to put yourself last, to put yourself in the last place and to put others before you. So again, remember, this is what characterizes the leadership of the church. Now, now we get into chapter four, where Paul again says, I want you to see me like this, as a servant of Christ. That's the word, right? The word servant, but it's a different word. It's a different Greek word. Um, this word, uh, the first time we come across it in ancient literature is actually in Greek mythology, and it refers to somebody by the name of Hermes. And Hermes was a messenger of the gods, which meant that he was designed to carry out the will of Zeus, right? Zeus being considered the chief of all gods. And so Hermes, as a servant of Zeus, had the responsibility for carrying out the will of Zeus. But not only did he have the responsibility of carrying out Zeus's will, he also had the authority and power of Zeus backing him up. And so what this word has come to mean and what Paul is embracing and wants us to embrace is that the person who works as a servant of Christ, which again, primarily he is speaking of himself, but it can then be associated with all people who are in leadership of the church and then can even be associated with every single one of us in our effort to live a life of following Jesus, he says this, a person who is a servant of Christ is a person with authority, but who lives under another person's authority. In other words, Paul and other church leaders were middle management. The way Paul wanted the church to see him was he was a sort of middle manager, right? He did have, of course, some authority. 
Uh, he was responsible for establishing the church, and he had a vested interest in the well-being of that church. And so he continued to exercise a measure of authority. Um, we're reading a letter, just one of at least a couple, probably more letters that he wrote to this church, where from time to time he will remind them of his authority as an apostle and as a leader in the church. But the way Paul sees himself, and what's interesting about this word is that while the word from chapter 3, um, this word diakonos, right, which we translate sometimes as deacon, right? Maybe you've gone to a church where you, your church actually had an office of deacons, right? People that were like kind of leaders, maybe lay leaders in the church. Um, the, those deacons were what they ought to be are servants of the church. Um, and so uh, what's really kind of the, the primary stress of that kind of servant is the people who are benefiting from the service, right? To the extent that I am serving as a deacon, right? To the extent that you are serving as a deacon, there are people that are going to benefit from that. Here, though, this word that Paul uses as one who exists under the authority of someone else, now the emphasis is shifted toward the person to whom Paul reports, which, this may be no surprise to you, is Jesus. So Jesus sits here at the top as Lord and King, and Paul sees himself as a middle manager who comes with the responsibility of taking care of what his master has put into his hands, right? And also has the authority of that master backing him up. Now, then Paul goes on to use another term to describe himself, and that is the word manager. He says, we are servants of Christ and we are managers of the mysteries of God. Now, this other word, manager, would be something like an estate manager. Uh, in Paul's day, most likely it would have been a servant who had been given the responsibility of managing a household. I want you to imagine just for a moment, while you are of sound mind and of sound body, can you imagine giving something like the power of attorney for everything that is precious to you to another person? Now, I know some of you might have a document like that that's kind of like ready to go and ready to be executed um, upon some kind of catastrophic event in your life where you are no longer able to attend to your personal responsibilities. But can you imagine, like right now, right where you are, just giving all of that privilege and responsibility over to another human being? Like they get all your accounts and passwords, like, I know you're sharing your Netflix passwords with, you know, what, four or five people, whatever, whatever the limit is, right? Or, or maybe you're benefiting from somebody else's Netflix account. I don't know. But can you imagine, like, the, all the login information and credentials for your bank account, um, basically authority to buy on your behalf and to sell on your behalf, can you imagine vesting somebody with that kind of authority in your life? How many of you would do that? Like while you're of sound mind and sound body. That's right. Not one of us. Why? 
Because that requires an incredible amount of trust, does it not? I mean, think about the kind of person that you would give that responsibility to. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about, what he has been entrusted with. Now, in Paul's day, this kind of thing happened all the time. You had people that were so wealthy and their estates were so broad that they had not only the money to have all of the wealth and power that they had, they even had so much that they were able to then hand over responsibility for all that wealth and power to somebody else, a person that they entrusted, right? So that they could just kind of go off and not even, not even worry about. Like they, they entrusted the care of their estate. It's, it's not too dissimilar for like if you had some money that you gave to a financial advisor and said, okay, I'm going to hand you this money and I want you to manage it for me and I want you to produce an increase. I want you to produce an income for me. And then, and then you just sort of walk away, right? And you don't check it. And you don't nag them and bug them about it. You just let them do, even when the market's going crazy and everything's plummeting, right? And um, was it not too long ago, everybody's investments, you know, were reduced by 50%. Everybody's freaking out, right? As we would tend to do. It's like, what happened to all my retirement savings, right? But for those who had kind of a steady trust in their financial advisors, they're just like, I'm not going to worry about it, right? I'm going to let the professionals kind of take care of it. So that's, that's what happened in Paul's day. Now, Paul uses this word to describe how he stands as a leader within the church. He's a servant, okay? A servant who is living with the mechanism of the upside-down pyramid, right? He is there not to benefit from the church, but to serve the church. But he also has this deep recognition for what has been entrusted to him. He's been given something very, very, very precious to manage. Something that doesn't belong to him. You see, for Paul, the church at Corinth wasn't his deal. It wasn't his baby. It wasn't his thing to do with whatever he wanted to do or whatever seemed best to him. No, he was a manager, which meant that he needed to follow the will and desire of the one for whom he was managing. And here's what Paul says in verse 2. In this regard, in this regard, it is required that managers be found, everybody say it, faithful. Thank you, two of you, who I guess are all of you now. Everybody say faithful. Faithful. What an important word for us. In this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. The most important quality that a person who, let's say, was interviewing somebody for the position of managing all of their estate and all of their affairs, the most important quality was trustworthiness. That was the number one thing that would have been your concern. Think about the other things that we often use to measure, um, you know, how many have measured uh, the, the pastor of their church based on how eloquent they were? 
on how well they used their words, how gifted they were in the art of rhetoric. Did the person have the power of persuasion? How many people have we elected into office because of their ability to leverage words to convince masses of people towards some particular belief? We've used things like success. We look at how in the eyes of the world and the way in which the world measures success as an indicator of whether or not somebody ought to be entrusted with more. How about the ability that some people have to simply enchant others? Have you ever been in the presence or the company of another person where it's like you're just so drawn to that person? There's something about their personality that just drew you to them right? Their charisma. I mean, how many, uh, not only uh, have there been like whole, sometimes church movements or religious movements or cultic movements or other kinds of movements led by some charismatic individual, right? A person who was able to convince masses of people to follow them, even though they were leading those masses astray. I mean, we're so shallow, we even measure people based on their physical attractiveness, Right? But when it comes to the manager who serves God and the church, the most important quality of that manager is trustworthiness. And the question is, to whom is that trustworthiness pointed? I can tell you the challenge that a lot of people working in ministry have is to try their best to make everybody happy. Like, do you know how much I want to make all of you happy? Right? But look at y'all. Some of you are married. I can't make the two of you happy. Right? Never mind a whole church. Um, sometimes I wake up in tremors. Reflecting back on the year 2020. <laughs> you think about the state of our society in 2020. You know how hard it was to be in ministry, right? And, and I mean, that was, that, that was a very peculiar time. But the, the reality is a lot of people working in ministry, they face incredible pressure to just try to make everybody happy. Why? Well, because I don't want any of you to go away. I, I, know, I know like not too far from here, somebody's preaching a better sermon than I am. Right? I know that. I know that somewhere not too far from here, the music is better. The seats are more comfortable. They get the temperature right in the sanctuary at least half the time. And so here we are. We, just, we want to make everybody happy. And unfortunately, in far too many cases, the desire to make people happy, to please the crowds, some have compromised. Some have compromised. Paul says in verse 3, it is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I am not conscious of anything against myself, but I am also not justified By this clean conscience, it is the Lord who judges me. 
It is the Lord who judges me, Paul says. Now, Paul is not saying that he is above any kind of criticism, either constructive criticism, if we're going to be, you know, put a positive spin on it, or even real criticism, like, like real negativity. Paul's not saying that he's, like, he's just, he presides as a person who is an apostle of the church. Like, look at all the churches that I have established. I, I don't have to listen to you. Like, that's not what he's saying. What Paul is saying, though, is that what matters most about the manager, the person who has been given charge and custody of this thing that does not belong to him or her, what matters most about the manager is what Jesus thinks about the manager. I've, um, I've had to, of course, as we all do in our lives, like negotiate between this desire to um, do all kinds of things, right? The desire to help somebody, but to help them without hurting, you know? Uh, it's a popular way that people kind of describe that, this like, all right, what do I, what I do um, in this particular situation? Right, there's, again, I, I, I don't get up here wanting to make people mad. I want uh, I, I want for the experience that we have as a gathered church to be rewarding and filling and life-giving. Um, but it doesn't allow me to escape the responsibility of proclaiming the truth when the truth needs to be proclaimed, right? What matters not is not what we think or how we estimate one another. Like what should matter... Very little to you is what you think I think about you. What should matter to you is what Jesus thinks about you. Paul goes on to say that what Jesus thinks of me matters even more than what I think of me, right? Not only does it not matter what other people think about me, Paul says it doesn't matter what I think about me. How many of you think a lot of you? Come on, be honest. I know there's more than four of you right? That's probably most of us, right? We, do, we not, do, we not, do we not think a lot about me? Paul says, like, even with, as far as he was concerned, there was, there was nothing, um, there was nothing in his conscience, right? Like, he wasn't holding on to this hidden dark secret uh, where he had done something bad or abusive of the church or where he had neglected or shirked any of his pastoral or apostolic responsibilities. There's nothing in his mind that he could think of. And he says, even that clean conscience does not absolve me of the possibility that I could be found untrustworthy, right? Uh, it's not what I think about me. It's what Jesus thinks about me. What Jesus thinks of me matters more than what I think about me. Again, this doesn't matter that, this doesn't, or it doesn't mean that he didn't, he didn't care about like what he thought of himself, right? We are, we're all standing here, sitting here uh, with a way that we think about ourselves. Um, and certainly there's, uh, if, if, if we don't ever like do self-evaluations or self-check-ins, if we don't look at the indicators of our lives that might suggest that there's something that is not quite right, like if we fail to be introspective regarding ourselves, that's not good. That's not going to ever be healthy. The point that Paul is making 
is not that we shouldn't be willing to take a deep look inside, a deep, honest look inside from time to time. But what he is saying is that he knew that neither the church in Corinth nor even he himself was the final authority on whether or not his life deserved a commendation. Why? Because he understood that, like, when it comes to judging things, right, he says, I don't even judge myself. Uh, This word judging means, like, uh, uh, the ability to leverage investigative abilities. And Paul knew that our investigative abilities are fallible, right? They're capable of error. The truth is, I can look at you, and I can make an assessment, and I could be dead wrong on how I characterize something about you. And same goes you know, you toward me. Like a lot of you think I'm not funny. I'm the funniest guy here. I just, I struggle with being funny while I'm preaching for some reason, right? Um, now, you know what I mean? Like, like we, make, we make character assessments and judgments of one another. We do this all the time everywhere we go. Problem is our investigative abilities are fallible. Our judgment of others is capable of being wrong, and our judgment even of ourselves is capable of being wrong. Now, that might sound surprising to you. You might think that you are the person who is best positioned to know what is true about you and what is true about your heart. But here's the problem. Here's why even something like our consciences are capable of error. It's because our consciences are not these perfectly and finely tuned machines that never go out of whack. As much as we'd like to think that our conscience is something like that, that, oh, as soon as my conscience kicks in, I will know that I have gone too far. If you're sitting here kind of flirting with things that you know or kind of like getting toward the limits of what you ought to do, Right? Uh, when the Bible talks about sin, one of the ways it talks about it is by using the word trespass. Right? The picture is that there are boundaries for our lives that we're supposed to live within. And sometimes we're knuckleheads, right? And we push up against the boundaries, maybe even trespass over the boundaries. Some of us think, well, I'm just going to kind of keep going a little further until my conscience won't allow me to go any further. And so we cheat a little here and we lie a little there. Why are we able to do that? Well, we're able to do that because our conscience is broken. It's fallible. It's capable of being wrong. It's like, it's like a measuring instrument, right, that you might use to measure something but that that measurement instrument needs to be calibrated itself from time to time. And if it's not calibrated, then when you use the instrument to take a reading on something, it's going to be off one way or the other. It might reveal results that are too sensitive or not sensitive enough. What is that? Well, it's, a, it's our conscience gets thrown off kilter in its calibration. This is why... Um, If we were to survey the room, like we would find varying degrees of conscientiousness towards all kinds of things, right? Some people would feel perfectly okay with doing, you know, some particular thing, and other people would be like, that's a terrible thing to do. Like, I I could never do something like that. Our investigative abilities are fallible. So here's what Paul says. He says, so don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes. 
who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts, right? There's this indication that there's coming a point when the Lord will come and he will bring to light what is hidden in the darkness. He will reveal the intentions of the hearts and then praise will come to each one from God. You know what's so beautiful about this that Paul, I think, really wants for us to know is that anyone, anyone here is eligible for God's praise. Anyone here is eligible to receive, at the end of our lives, a commendation from Jesus, the one to whom we are ultimately accountable. I stand here with a life that God has given to me, that he has entrusted me with, that I am one day going to stand before Jesus, my King and my Lord. And at that point, it's not going to matter what other people thought about me or what their estimation of me was with regard to what I did with my life. It's not even going to matter what I thought about me. What's going to matter is what Jesus thinks. Paul says, don't judge anything. Like, don't hand down the final verdict. Listen to what Jesus is going to do. He's going to bring to light what is hidden in darkness, and he's going to reveal the intentions of the hearts. That is, you and I, we are going to experience this someday when that which was hidden in darkness is going to be brought into the light and that which was hidden in the secrets of our hearts is going to be revealed. So I ask you, is, that, is something like that scary? <laughs> or is that awesome? Some of you are like, I don't know, it sounds scary. Could be scary, right? Let me tell you why it's awesome. It's awesome because we live in a world that is full of injustice. We live in a world that's full of inequity. We live in a world where the scales are often tipped. Sometimes it feels like they're in our favor. Sometimes for some of us, they feel like they're very much out of our favor. There are times when we have been harmed and there's been no justice for the harm that's been done. We see those who perpetrate injustices on others and it seems like those injustices go unpunished. What we know is that when the king comes in the fullness of his glory, in the fullness of his kingdom, he's going to make that which was wrong right again. When it comes to my own life and the thought of standing before Jesus and receiving either a commendation for a life that was lived and managed in a way that recognized him as the one to whom I am accountable, or I stand before him embarrassed for the life that I let flitter away because I cared only about what I wanted. Anyone is eligible for God's praise. We all here today have the ability to receive a commendation from our Lord and Savior. And here's why this is good news. It's good news because while not everyone is capable of success in the way that the world measures success, whether it's material success or religious success, or we are all capable of being trustworthy. We are all capable of being faithful to what God has put into our hands and into our lives. Listen to how some writers describe one said that Christians should avoid the despair of assuming failure in advance of the day of the Lord or the presumption of assuming total success 
in advance of it. Again, it doesn't matter what I think about me. It matters what Jesus thinks about me. Another said, the servant leaves his or her successes and failures with God. What has been done is done, and God alone knows the true worth of it. Remember, God is going to reveal that which was hidden, and he's going to bring out that which was kept secret. And then finally, another says, God will inspect our faithfulness, penetrating the depths of the human heart, and our true colors will be revealed. What are my true colors? Who am I really? Am I committed to living a life that's living for nothing but for Jesus' praise? Imagine if God's priorities for my life and imagine if God's priorities for your life actually became my priorities. They became your priorities. Imagine if God's desires for the good of others, right? whether it's the good of others who are in this room or the good of others that live in your neighborhood or the good of others that are at your school or workplace or the good of others that you encounter from here to Timbuktu. Imagine if God's desires for the good of others became our desires for the good of others. So I leave you with this question this morning. What has Jesus entrusted to you? What has he put into your hands? What has he put into your life? And will you be faithful with it?